It seems like every week we're hearing on the, on the news the president has declared a disaster area here. Every few weeks there's a flood or a hurricane or a tornado. And we see those things happen, and they normally really get our attention when they're in the headlines. But if you're like me, after you've heard that, it just sort of fades away from your consciousness if you're not there. For instance, just a couple years ago, many of us went to Panama City. We took at least, I, I took one trip, and we saw a lot of disaster. And now I've sort of moved on. Where if you talk to people who live there, the disaster is ongoing. It's a disaster area. And there's two steps to what happens then. First of all, you've got to survey the damage. What has happened? And most of us see that. But we don't see is the second step, which is to move into action. Now, if you're our guest today, we're in the middle of a message series on the 12 steps. And, and we're surveying the damage of our life that's happened because of not just our addictions, but any of our issues. And you, you see this sort of cycle of destruction we've been talking about. Normally, someone starts with some kind of difficulty in their life. There's pain. Something is called pain in their life, and then it moves on to denial. I don't want to deal with the pain, and so I deny that it's there, hoping it'll get better. The problem is, it leads to all kinds of dysfunction in my life, and the dysfunction doesn't just hit me. It hits everybody around me. My home becomes dysfunctional. My workplace becomes dysfunctional. My, my relationships. And then finally, it leads to destruction. And again, the destruction is not just with you. It's with the people around you. And that's why it's so important this morning as we move into step eight and step nine. Because step eight will tell us to survey the damage. What's happened? What's happened to the people around us? And then step nine will challenge us to move into action. What are we going to do about the damage? Now, here's what I love about step eight and step nine. These steps, they, they push us. They, they push me out of selfishness and into responsibility. Say that with me. They push me out of what? And into what? That's adulthood, isn't it? When I take responsibility for my actions. Now, if you've got little children, you understand this. You're always trying to teach them responsibility. Maybe you've got a, a couple of kids running around, and one of your boys you know, takes a Lincoln log. Are those still exist? Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you hadn't gone too far. All right. And he just, for some reason, he takes and just bops his brother on the head. Now, are you just going to let that go? No, you want him to take responsibility. So the first thing you do is you teach when he's done something wrong that he says what? I'm what? Sorry, okay? And I've watched my grandchildren. It reminds me what happens is, you know, they'll beat him on the head and the brother's bleeding, and all they say is, sorry. <laughs> and that's what's a sob. If you say, hey, now, you got to go into timeout. We got to I already said I was sorry. So, so, so why do I have to do that? But you know to teach responsibility, it's not enough just to see it, just to survey it, just to admit it. You've also got to go into action. So you're going to sit that kid down, and you're going to say, do you see what you did to your brother? How would you feel if someone bopped you on the head like that? I want you to sit there. I want you to think about it. And I want you to be better. And that's what's happening in steps eight and step nine. We are learning to take responsibility for our actions and the way they have affected other people. Now, let's go to a great Bible story. Luke chapter 19. Have your Bible. want to go on your phone. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And we know Zacchaeus as the wee little man. 
But what I would like to do is say to you this morning is Zacchaeus, the wee little man, was a man with very big problems. Now, we're, we're looking at a guy that's got some issues. I don't know that we always go deep enough on this, but start with me in verses 1 and 2. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Guys, if you wanted to name wicked people in Jesus' day, at the top of your list would be a tax collector because he was ripping you off and he was working with the enemy. So there's nobody worse. And Zacchaeus is the chief of them. Now, don't go too fast here to think, you know what, there's probably a reason for this. I mean, I, I don't think we're stretching the truth to say Zacchaeus must have had some kind of hurt and issue in his life, some kind of pain that he's trying to cover up. And he found that he could cover it up by making money. And so in the long run, you know, he makes money, and it just sort of temporarily makes him feel better. And before long, he's given himself to making money so much that he becomes a traitor in his own country, so much that he doesn't even care who he walks over to get the money. But as so many of us find who reach that mountaintop of what we think is going to bring us satisfaction, it doesn't. He's got all the money. He's got the condo on the Sea of Galilee. He's got everything he needs, and yet he's desperate. And remember, that's the beginning of the 12 steps is desperation. Look at verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. I love this. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, says Jesus was coming that way. I mean, this man is so desperate, so messed up, despite the fact he's got more money than he can spend. He's so desperate that that he does what no honorable man would do, pull up his cloak, it's embarrassing, no matter what he's showing, and climb a fig tree. But you see, these are those first two steps. He knew that he was powerless to overcome his problems. And he had at least heard that Jesus was powerful, and so he doesn't care. He just wants to get to Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you here, Jesus was not embarrassed. He was so excited by this moment. Look at verses, verses 3 and 4. No, go, go into verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. He said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, oh no, he's gone to be a guest of sinners. Jesus says, bingo. This is, this is so good. I'm meeting a man who's sick, who knows he's sick, who knows he needs a doctor. And I don't even care, Jesus says, if it ruins my reputation I'm going to this guy. And so if you come here this morning and you've got lots of problems, Jesus is not going to be embarrassed by you. In fact, he'll be okay if you invite him home today. In fact, he'll probably invite himself to your house. That's what's sort of funny here. I mean, Jesus so wants to encounter this man, he says, I'm coming to your house. How do you think Mrs. Zacchaeus took that? I mean, Zacchaeus can't even text her and say, hey, I'm bringing company home. This is the big group of preachers bust in, you know, talking about a fun time. I mean, they, they all get there. And, but you know what? Jesus wanted to connect with this man. 
And obviously there's, there's some kind of great conversation between this desperate man and this powerful Savior. And then look at what happens. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. What an amazing scene. This guy moves into action. He says, you know what? I'll give half my money to the poor. I'll go back to all these people I've abused. It had to be a long list. And I'm going to give them four times what I cheated. That was way beyond what the law would say. You see, what Zacchaeus understood was when you're getting right with Jesus, it's not enough just to confess and get right with Jesus. You've also got to get right with the people you've hurt. You see, we probably would have set, called this to an end if we had been G. We'd call it a timeout. No, 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 Zacchaeus, don't, don't, don't get so quick on this. I'm going to pay back. I mean, no, you, you've met me. I mean, I'm Jesus. I mean, I'm going to save you. You're going to have a personal relationship with me. And that's really all you need. You, you don't, you don't, I mean, just, just enjoy your salvation. I mean, you can't go. I mean, you're going to embarrass yourself. You're going to make a spectacle of yourself. Going back to all these people, just, just stop. And guys, that's one of our great misunderstandings today. Is we feel like if I just get my life right with God, that's all I need to do. Where God says, there's more to it. In fact, write this sentence down. Jesus came to reconcile us with God and with each other. With God and with each other. Now, I don't know about you, but it's much easier for me to be reconciled with God. Because guess what? He's perfect. He's always perfect, always loving, always gracious, always forgiving. If anybody screws that relationship, it's me. But people, that's tough. Because think about this. 100% of the people you love will at some point let you down. And so will you. The sad thing I found in my life is that often I hurt the people I love the most. So that's the tough part. But that's what's so powerful about step eight and step nine is that they call me out of my selfishness and say, it's not enough just to be right with God. you got some other folks you need to make things right. So let's look at these, these steps. Step eight, survey the damage. Here it is. We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Okay, I'm willing to look back and go, okay, in my obsession, my addiction, in my selfishness, in my career hunger, in my sell out to recreation instead of my family, who have I hurt? The child, a father, a mother, a daughter, grant, what, what have I done? Now, let me give you a few areas to think about this morning of people you may have harmed. You may have harmed someone financially. I think quite often in our life, there's some point where, you know, someone loans us money, and we never pay it back, and they're kind enough to never come back to us. And so it may be financially. I love the story of, of Mike Babson who was on the screen a couple weeks ago, one of our overcomers, he was telling me about this step. 
And he said when he started getting his life right with God, you see, the first seven steps are about having peace with God and peace with yourself. That's important. Steps eight and nine are about having peace with people. And he said, when I got to steps eight and nine, I remembered a man that I had borrowed money from and never paid it back. And when he goes to the man, the man has been so long, the man is 87 years old. And so Mike goes, and he's paying the money back. In the midst of this, he finds out the man has cancer and is very close to dying, and his wife is not strong enough to take care of him. You know what Mike did? He moved in with him. And from October of 2006 to January of 2007, he took care of this man. He was willing to go make amends for what he had done. So it might be financially, it might be morally. It may be someone that you let down, someone you led them down a path. I mean, you were young and crazy and partying and drinking. And, and before long, you know, you weren't careful who you did it around. And before long, somebody else picked it up and maybe you were able to shed it and they become an alcoholic. Or, or maybe morally, you know, you know, you were doing some things with people you shouldn't have been doing. And you convinced her to do it with you. You convinced him to do it with you. And, and there's been, you know, there's a, there's a danger zone there. There's a zone of damage because you are not who you should be. And even we could also talk about it spiritually. Because I'm not trying to, to send us any guilt trip here. What I'm trying to say is, you know, we got to be honest about the damage. If we're ever one of the people we ought to be. And spiritually, maybe, you know, a lot of us look back and go, man, I wish I'd led my family more. I wish I'd had my priorities right. I wish we as a family hadn't put other things above the Lord or above church. I wish we'd read the Bible together. I wish I'd prayed more. And you know, spiritually, so many of us, you know, you know, our children are now lukewarm, and it's, we think, oh my goodness, what did I do? Or what did more often, what did I not do? Or maybe it's relationally. You've harmed someone. You've hurt someone. Maybe someone you were really close to. You came to a point where you went, you know what? I didn't mean to. But in the middle of me wanting a certain thing, I hurt you. I think of a friend years ago that I hurt. And I didn't realize I was doing it. In fact, I probably could find enough excuses to blame this other person. But in the long run, I figured out, you know what? The only thing I could do is take responsibility for what I did. And I went back to him over and over again and said, man, I'm so sorry how I treated you. It was so wrong. And finally, I'd gone back so many times. He said to me, buddy, the issue is no longer yours. You have apologized to me over and over. I'm the one that's got the issue now. And you've got to be willing to do that. That's step eight, to look at that. Now, this is so important. You've got to hear what Jesus said about this. Because it might even change what we're doing right now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, okay, you're going to church, you're going to worship, and there you remember a brother or sister who has something against you, you leave the gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, does that sound Right? I mean, if you're one of these people, you're going, Jesus, you're kidding me. I have traveled all these miles to come to the temple. I bought a sacrifice. I sacrificed money. I've stood in line for hours to try to get into this place. What, what do you want me to do? You want me to go tie the lamb up and travel back home to apologize? I mean, Jesus, isn't, 
God, isn't my relationship with you more important than anything else? I mean, do you really, are you really serious that I've got to stop right here? I mean, could you not let me wait till after church? Jesus said no. You can't be in right fellowship with God when you're out of fellowship with others over something you've done to hurt them. Part of walking with God is making that phone call that you dread to say, I'm so sorry what I did. Of scheduling that appointment where you know the conversation is going to be so awkward. Of writing a letter you should have written a decade ago to say, man, I am so sorry. You see, this is what happens in step eight. You're humbling yourself, you're owning your part of the problem, and you're doing everything in your power to get it right. And that leads us to step nine. That's when you, you step into action. Uh, listen to step nine. We may direct amends to such people whenever possible, except to do so, except if to do so would injure them or others. You know what step nine is? It's Romans chapter 12. Paul says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, you can't do something you can't do. Live at peace with all men. You gotta, you gotta make, you gotta take that step. Now, you don't do it, he says, if it's gonna hurt something. You know, if you're going to walk up and tell somebody that you had thoughts about them you should have never had about them and they have no clue, you're going to do more damage than good. Or maybe, you know, to go back to that person, you know, it's just it's going to bring up things with other people that's going to be harmful. You can't do this out of just selfish purposes. And so what do you do when you're wanting to have this kind of healing? First of all, you, you check your heart. Just check your heart, okay? Am I doing this just so I feel better? Or am I doing it to help this person? Can't be selfish. Are my motives pure here? Am I just wanting to go back and have one more chance to tell them off? No. That's why, number two, you prepare your words. What am I going to say? Because if you're like me, and guys, most relationships, when there's tension there, it's two-sided. Very few times is it one person doing everything wrong. And so you got to pick your words. you got to go, you know what, I'm going back. And here's what I'm going to say. What I did to you is wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I'm so sorry. What can I do to make amends? Now, you know what? What I did to you is really bad, but you know what you did to me sort of prompted that. I mean, I know what I did to you is really bad, but what you did wasn't so hot either. No, 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 that's, that's not how you go. You go when you're humble enough, because the only person you can take responsibility for is yourself, and you can go back. So number three is you go to that person. You've you got your heart right, your words right, you go to the person. And number four, you do what Mike Babson did. You be willing to help. What are the steps that we've got to take to start undoing some of this damage? And then number five, be patient. Number one, they may not accept it the first time you go to them. They may never accept it. They may blow up. You don't know. It may take them time. And I heard something like 10 years ago that just it really has bothered me ever since. There was a, a young man that was in campus ministry when I was in Tuscaloosa. And he, was, he was a senior my first year there. And I heard word from somebody that he had big problems with me, that he felt like I had done something wrong to him. And I can still remember his roommate and some of the issues that were going on there. And I can remember he was head of the student council. And for some reason, you know, there, there had to be some decisions to remove him because... 
But I heard this guy was still just carried a crazy grudge against me, and it was affecting him spiritually. It just absolutely broke my heart. And I, I couldn't even remember that long ago the details. But I remember writing him a letter and just saying, man, whatever I've done and whatever I need to do to get this straight, I was young and immature, and I'm sure I probably did something that I shouldn't have done. Please forgive me. I've never heard a word back from him. It still bothers me. But again, I can't handle that. I can't, I can't help that. I've got to take responsibility for what I have done. And it may be something, guys, the damage is so widespread. Maybe years ago, in your foolishness, you went through a divorce and you hurt somebody. You thought there was something that you were going to gain. And what you really did is you hurt the people around you. You took your wife's husband, her first husband, away from her. Your children didn't have a father in their home. You, you've stolen Thanksgivings and Christmases and birthdays that would have been completely different. I, I know you can't go back and undo all that stuff. But there's a moment where you've got to take responsibility and say, you know what, I know you did these things, but what I did has caused a disaster area to happen in all of our lives. And, and children, I've got to apologize to you that I wasn't the dad I should be. And, and, and to your wife, I'm so sorry what happened. I know we can't undo it and put all the pieces together, but... I want things to be right. That's what we're talking about. And that's why step eight and step nine are so important. Now, I want to call someone to stage um, that understands this better than I do. And that is Michael Jordan. As we know him around here, he is the Michael Jordan. We got, we got the true one, okay? Now, Michael and I actually have some making up with each other, dude. <laughs> In first service, I introduced him as the custodian. And he said he was not the custodian. I'm not the custodian. You are I the minister the of what? Minister of maintenance. Oh, my goodness. So we're, we're still working through our issues. Um, but let me, let me say this before I start asking some questions. You would not be listening to this message series if it weren't for Michael. Michael's such an important part of our, our staff. He's such a great minister. And um, he, he did the 12 steps with us as a staff. So I say all this, say this. If you don't like this series, <laughs> don't talk to me, talk to Michael, okay? So Michael, um, I mean, you, you've just helped me so much in trying to understand this. Why are these 12 steps so powerful in your estimation? To me, it's just, they're so spiritual. Uh, they've got me closer to God. Uh, if Without them, I, I wouldn't be here. They've saved my life. So what was your addictive issues? You know, when did that start? When I was 12 years old is when I first started drinking and doing drugs. Uh, and it just progressed on. I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't say at that time, I'm going to grow up and be an alcoholic and addict. You know, and it just progressed on. Uh, in 2003, I went to, uh, I was uh, up to, I got hurt, so I was taking some pain pills, and uh, I watched a boy fall 36 foot. I was from here to the end of the stage there and watched him fall and hit the ground. So I couldn't sleep. I was prescribed Xanax and pain pills, and I was up to 60 pills a day. And, uh, 60. 60. And uh, I'd take a handful in the morning, a handful at 9 o'clock, a handful at lunch, 
a handful in the afternoon and a handful at night to go to sleep. And the whole time I'm smoking pot too, so. And, uh, but I, had a, I, I was working out of town in Lou Byrne, and uh, a friend of mine is, al- was a, is a recovering alcoholic. He'd been clean and sober for about eight years now. But he, uh, he looked at me with his counting his beers in the refrigerator while we was working and saying, you got a drug problem. So I knew then I, there was something going on, but uh, I was standing on 3.30 morning and uh, contemplating stepping out in front of an 18-wheeler and, and ending it because I, I, did, I didn't want to go on. And uh, I come back to Montgomery, and uh, Zane Kirkland and Al Crosby took me up to Bradford. Uh, I was talking to Al last week, and I told him, I said, you know, I'm sure I'm glad you had them locks on your vehicle that you could sit in the front seat that he could sit where they wouldn't, the doors wasn't unlocked because in my head I was thinking, well, I can jump out right here and roll and I'd be okay. But uh, I had to make amends to Al last week because I had a lot of resentments toward him and Zane. Uh, but no, I love them to death. And I uh, went to Bradford 18 days, come back home. And in, in the program, they tell you to get a sponsor, work the steps, and go to meetings. And I said, I, I, I don't need to do that. I'll be okay. So I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't go to meetings. And uh, 18 months later, I went back out and stayed out nine more years. Uh, so January 23rd of 2013, I living in a FEMA trailer. And uh, I, I swear I broke down. Um, tell, tell a little bit of what brought you to the bottom and what was the disaster area around you like? It was chaos at all times. Uh, about two years before I moved into a FEMA trailer, I had my 15-year-old daughter tell me it was uh, either me or you, one of us has got to go. And... Uh, so I moved out. Of course, I didn't stop my using. And I was in that FEMA trailer. I moved out and moved in that FEMA trailer with my two dogs, Rebel and Bugsy, little chihuahuas. And uh, I was in there with no power. All I had was tap water. And when I bought the FEMA trailer, there was a box of saltine crackers in the cabinet that I never moved. So there ain't no telling how long that sock box had been in there. But at the time, that, that's all I was eating, was eating those stale saltine crackers and uh, drinking tap water. My dogs had food. I, I, I didn't have a job. I, I was working little side jobs to make some money. My dogs had food. But my, my money, what I had left, had to go to my drug of choice. And... Uh, on, on that day, January 23rd, I dropped to my knees in that trailer and said, Lord, take me or take this obsession away from me. And uh, I called a good buddy of mine. I don't see him sitting over there, but Aubrey Newton. And I said, what, what, what can I do? And uh, he said, meet me at NA meet. And I did. And I've been clean and sober ever since.
You know, your story reminds me of, of Ed Bice's story a few weeks ago of you got to have that moment when you fall down before God and just surrender. And yeah. that, again, that's the beginning of the steps. But now we've gotten to step eight and nine. And I know from what you told me, these are very important steps for you that you avoided, but you finally came to. Why are these so important? And what would you say to the person out here that goes, you know what, I got my life right with God. I don't need to go back and get this stuff right. Uh, you, you've got to. You've got to because it will eat inside of you and make you miserable. And you will go back to doing whatever you were doing. Uh, with mine, it was, you know, the only one I regret not making a, amends to was my father because he died before I got clean and sober. But my sponsor told me, he said, write him a letter. He'll, he, he'll see. He'll know you. And, and that's what I did, and I wrote him a letter, and I still have that today. But with my family and with my daughter that, that told me it was either me or her, I had done told him I'm sorry so many times that I, I knew that was, I, she wasn't going to listen to that. So I just progressed along and, and, and let her see what this program and how I was. Uh, every year, you know, we, when, you, when you're clean, getting clean and sober in AA, you, you get medallions every year on how many clean and sober years you have to, First year, second year, and first year, nothing. Second year, she, I think she liked it. Third year, she said, I'm so proud of you. So I knew then that, that everything was getting back to normal. And today, I can go pick my grandkids up anytime I want and just uh, have a good time with them. Not a be- beautiful story. Hey, we're, we're walking into communion now, and I read something this week that, that reminds me of what you're saying, what we're trying to say today. But there, uh, the author named Richard Rohr, who talks about the geometry of the cross, and so show that picture up there. And, and the point that he makes is, what happened on the cross was not just vertical. It wasn't just God making your relationship with him right. It was also horizontal. It's about your relationships becoming right, like with your daughter. What yes. a beautiful story. And so today as we go to the communion tables, communion reflects that. Many of us are brought up to believe it's just my little bubble time with God. But the truth is communion is so much more than that. And that's why we've tried to replicate, at least to some extent, that it can be vertical, that it can be horizontal, that you can talk to people around you, that you can share with them. And so today, in light of what Jesus said, if there's someone here even in this audience, that you know you've hurt. Or really, if we went to Matthew 18, they've hurt you. Or if there's just someone you just need to have a conversation with, I want to encourage you during communion, we're going to have quite a few minutes here, just go talk to that person. If it's just somebody you just need to go give a hug to and say, thank you, God, that we're reconciled. But we want to use this time in the geometry of the cross We want you to fellowship with God. If you're our guest, there's tables scattered. We also want you to fellowship with each other. If there's something that needs to be made right, Jesus would say, you know what? If they're they're not here, you probably ought to just go. I know that was funny. So (laughs) you might might just ought to just go, you know? Because this is really this important. Don't discount it. So, Michael, would you pray? Sure. And then we'll go to the table. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much, so much for, for being an understanding, forgiving, and caring God.
And especially thank you so much for sending your son down here to, to die for us on that cross and, and just uh, so we can be forgiven of our sins. And as we take the bread that represents your body and the cup that represents your blood, may we do it so pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're talking about today is so absolutely radical. This is not the way people handle things. It's not the way our culture handles things. I mean, forgiveness is probably the most radical Christian doctrine of all. Reconciliation. I mean, can you imagine if they practice this in Washington, D.C.? Can you imagine if people apologize for the way they talk about each other, the way they act toward each other? Instead of a culture where you say, you hit me, I'll hit you harder. And that's not just in D.C., that's our culture. And so when someone has this kind of radical sense of forgiveness, we're shocked. How is it possible? Here's why it's possible, God, because of what you just sang. We have a completely holy and perfect God who gave himself in our stead so that we could be forgiven. And God is willing or has forgiven you of far worse than anyone could ever do to you. And we've seen that on display this week. If you've been watching the news about what happened in that trial in Dallas this week, of that police officer, Amber Gergen, who walked in that wrong apartment and shot Brant Jean dead. And then this week we saw Brant's brother, Botham, on the stand pleading with this woman to come to Jesus, offering her complete forgiveness. And then in that scene, I don't think we'll ever forget when he looked at that judge and said, would it be okay if I gave her a hug? And the judge granted it, and she went and gave that hug. And we see that incredible moment of reconciliation where that woman who was so broken was forgiven. Now, here's what tells you how far we've gone. That brother who forgave has been roundly criticized that there shouldn't have been that kind of forgiveness, that it let her off too light. And yet we know that God has let us off for far worse. And we can get that kind of forgiveness. And my friend, if our nation is ever going to heal, that's going to happen. If your family's going to heal, that's got to happen. If your relationships are going to heal, that kind of forgiveness has got to take place. And how could we not extend it or accept it? Can you imagine that police officer Amber, who's now going to go spend many years in jail, in prison? Can you imagine now that she's been forgiven, if, a, if an ex-boyfriend came to her and said, you know, I really want you to forgive me. I broke up you. I shouldn't have broke up on text. Or an ex-employee says, you know, uh, I know I didn't train you the way I should, and you ended up losing your job, and, and, and I mishandled that situation. Could you possibly forgive me? Of course she can forgive. How could she not forgive after she's been forgiven so much? And that's where we are. That's why we can extend this forgiveness. That's why what we do is radical. And so this morning, you know, if you're ready to accept that radical love of Jesus because you need forgiveness, then I invite you to come up here and, and to meet the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism and leave this place a brand new person. 
If you've come here today and your example has misled other people, a good old phrase we don't use anymore, you cause reproach on the church. Some things you've done that people know about. Your, 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 your group of friends here at church is not more on fire for God because of your presence. They're less on fire for your presence. And you want to make things right with the church than meet me on this front row. Or today, we've got a couple leaders. They come on up and just stand. They're going to stand in front of these doors. And maybe the work that you need to do is outside of this assembly. You need to go to someone and you need to confess and ask forgiveness. And before you leave this place, you'd like Dan or Brother and Sister Meadows to just to privately pray for you and what's going on in your life. So this morning, we serve an amazing holy God who's given us amazing grace. And now is our opportunity to respond. You need to do that. It'll be a great blessing to you and to many other people. That disaster area will begin to heal and become beautiful again. If you need to do that, do that right now while we stand and sing.